Hey everyone, this is Stacy. Thanks so much for joining in to another episode of Holy Spirit Soapbox. This is a special episode, and it's a recent sermon that Dan had the honor of doing for a wonderful community in Saratoga Springs, Utah called the Greenhouse Community Church. We've broken this sermon up into two episodes that we'll post this week and next. So for this episode, we'll be going through Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 75. We'll put that in the description below. So get out your Bibles and follow along with us if you'd like. We also want to give a special shout out and thanks to Pastor Jason Quaring for giving us another opportunity to share God's word with the church. Please join us in praying for him, his family, the greenhouse community, and for them to continue in their mission to love God, love people, and serve the world. Let's jump right in. Good morning. Good morning. Man, how about the weather, huh? The wet, Oh my gosh, it went from like 80 to 20 like it's a cop. You know what I mean? On the side of the road. It went so it's so cold outside out of nowhere. It's crazy. Um, folks, we have a lot to cover. We've got a lot to cover. Oh, hold on. That's, that's a spirit. It's a spirit working. Hold on. Hold on. All right. It's part of it, yeah. If we plan for that. All right, cool. We good? All right. <laughs> so we have a lot to cover. So if we go over your preferred church time, like sermon time, you can find me out in the parking lot. You can beat me up after that. But um, anyway, here we go. We're going to get right to it. Let's go. Ready? Look at this box. Oh, joy. Look at this box. Look at this. Perfectly wrapped because my wife did it, and she uh, worked at Hallmark for a little while. Um, this box is beautiful, right? This box, you've been told your entire life, I don't care how old you are, you've been told your entire life that this box holds all the joy, all the hope, all the happiness you'll ever need. You can go through all these struggles and stuff, but you just got to keep going back to the box, right? Just keep going back to this box. And in, in this box, you might find some really cool things, like you dig into it, you see a job. You're like, oh, I get a job. It's a high-paying job, too. It's awesome. This is perfect. This is what I wanted. And then you get, like, a house. And then you get, like, a spouse. And a cat and a mouse and a Dr. Seuss book. No, I'm just kidding. No, you get all these things. There's money and all these and dreams and, and power and control. And it's all in this box. And you can get into the box at any time. But then you keep going back to this box. You keep searching it, right? You're like, well, I found happiness the first time. I found joy. So I'm going to keep going back to this box. This box represents non-eternal, worldly things. And not just possessions. Like I said, control, power, whatever it is. That you, these, these things that you desire of the flesh, right? And we dig so far into this box and we come to the bottom of it. This is our world. Everybody gets a box, right? This is our world. Everybody gets these things. Like look at the mountains, right? Look at the beaches that we have. Look at the, the things that you have in possession, we get to enjoy these things, right? But we keep digging into that box and get to the bottom of it, and we're just like, I'm still not happy. I put all my hope and I put all my joy, I put all my everything into this box, and I'm still not happy. And God will allow you to do that, by the way, right? He will. And we're going to dig into this a little bit more today as we dig into Matthew. Um, but you may have been in this box before. You might be in the box right now. You might be thinking about going back to the box, right, if you're in a, in a tough time. And we'll see if we can get you out of it, okay? So here we go. We're about to read different responses, several different responses to people or historical figures. I say historical because the Bible is historical. 
figures that go into this box, and then they have these different responses to what happens when you get to the bottom of it, okay? But we're going to be in Matthew 26 and 27, so if you want to get your Bibles, we're going to read it anyway. You might have read this before. You might have gone through these verses before, but we're going to give a different perspective, okay? So here we go. Matthew 26, we're starting in verses 36 to 46, all right? Here we go. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. You know something here? He took those three again, Peter, James, John. Remember the transfiguration? A couple weeks ago, months ago, I have dad brain, so I can't remember when I did that last sermon, but transfiguration, he brought Peter, James, and John, and we're going to see what happens in a moment. Verse 30, now, and going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, not as, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch for me, with me for one hour, he asked Peter? Watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. These guys love sleeping, don't they? Man, they were sleeping before the transfiguration too, which is interesting. We learned that in Luke. They're going up to talk to God or with God to talk to God, right? To talk to Moses and talk to Elijah at the transfiguration. And they're sleeping on their hike. Now they're sleeping again. They're not grasping the seriousness of what's going on here, right? Has anybody gone camping before? Yeah, same, right? So my wife and I used to go camping in the backcountry in a tent, right? <clears throat> and we weren't the smartest guys. We used to put, like, food in the tent. <laughs> I, why? But anyway, you know, you, kinda, you don't really sleep when you're camping out in the backcountry because, you know, there's something that can, like, eat me, like, at any moment, right? Like, something grab me out of the tent. So you kind of sleep with one eye open, right? These guys are, like, fast asleep, okay? Now, I get it. It's late, and there's a reason why they're saying this in the Bible right now. They're saying this... Because it's nighttime, they're very sleepy, their eyes are heavy, but Jesus is like, stay awake. Jesus is wide awake right now, and he's like, sleep and flesh go hand in hand. They usually go hand in hand. I was blind, but now I can see, right? I was of the flesh, but now I'm of the spirit, so now I'm awake. But you notice these guys are still sleeping. Very interesting, right? And then Jesus says he's, he's sorrowful, right? He's troubled. This is lamentation. There's a difference between sorrow and lamentation. Sorrow is usually self-pity or just like, oh, this stinks. I can't believe I have to do this. And he's like, please, don't let me do this. That's sorrow or self-pity, remorse. Lamentation is more along the lines of like, I know what I must do, and I'm sorrowful that the fact that I actually have to come into the world and I have to do this, and I know what's coming. I don't want to go on the cross, I don't want to die of vicious death. He, he, know, death. he knows it's coming. He was sweating blood, it says in a different gospel, right? But he's lamenting the fact that he, people have just not trusted in him. We keep walking away from him. We keep going back to the flesh. So he's actually lamenting this fact here. 
Now in 47 to 50, I don't have up there, but uh, Judas comes and kisses Jesus. We all know this part, right? G- Judas comes with like an army of dudes, right, with, with swords and clubs and stuff. And he kisses Jesus so he could tell people who Jesus is, so they can come and capture him. All right? But in verse 50, it's interesting. Verse 50, Jesus knew what was going on here. He knew what had to happen. And he said, do what you came for, friend. Okay? In verse 50. Or friend, why have you come? Right? He calls him friend. We get mad at Judas a lot. Like, we don't even, like, name our kids Judas anymore. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we try to separate ourselves from the name Judas a lot. Like, Judas is just like, oh, my gosh, I don't want to have anything to do that, man. But how often are we like Judas? Seriously, think about it. How often do we get so caught up in this world and on the non-eternal things that we do whatever it takes to continue to get those things? And if we don't, we'll do more to get it. That's exactly what Judas did, right? But we have these little things called grace and mercy. Grace given for these times where we know we fall short and mercy to be reconciled and redeemed for that. Okay, but notice what Jesus says here. He says, friend, he still has compassion for Judas. He knows what Judas is doing. He knows what he's going to do, and he has compassion for him. What a God. Seriously, what kind of God does that? There is no other God like that. All right, verses 51 to 56. Here we go. Let's keep moving. Then the men step forward. I think these are a different translation. But anyway, then the men step forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companion reached for his sword, drew it out, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that, it's, that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching. Why didn't you get me there, right? And you did not arrest me. But this is all taking place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Now we learn about this whole sword situation was Peter. We hear this in, in the book of John. Peter was the one. Here, here we go again, right? We pick on Peter a lot. Poor guy. He pulled out a sword. He cut off an ear. Right? He relied back on his own faith. Okay? He was zealous for God. Like, oh my gosh, yeah, Peter, I, I would fight for, for God just like Peter did. I would make sure that God's not going to be killed and crucified. Right? We say that stuff, and we're like, yeah, it seems pretty good on the outside. But it was all for selfish motive. Right? It was all for selfishness. He did not want Jesus to leave him. He wasn't thinking of the big eternal picture that all of us sitting in this room and everybody that lived at the time and everybody that lived afterwards and before have this redemption in Christ. He wasn't thinking on that. He was thinking about his own faith and how much he wanted Jesus around, okay? Now, Jesus is like, don't you think I could just send a legion of armies, uh, of angels? A legion, how do I say this? I'm a Bostonian, so let me, let me think of it this way. A legion is um, an army that's, like, wicked big, okay? I don't know if that gives you some context, all right? Roughly 6,000-foot soldiers and 700 horses, okay? All right? Jason, he, he picked on me he, uh, the other week. He sent me a meme about the Boston accent, so I had to put this in in spite here. No, um, no but Jesus could have stopped all this. He could have just been like, you know what? I don't want to go through this. You know what? Just die. Everyone is gone, right? And then they're all disappeared, and then it's heaven, new creation, new earth, 
right? He could have done that, but he was thinking eternally. He was thinking for everybody sitting in here. He was thinking for everybody that was there, even the people that were going against him, including Judas. He was thinking about everybody because he was in the courts preaching, and they didn't seize him there. They chose to go at nighttime and pick him up. Weird. But that's for the writings to be fulfilled, the prophecies to be fulfilled. Fulfilled. Now, the rest of them, they fled, and he allowed that to happen. You notice that? It said at the end that they deserted him. He was standing there. They all took off in the woods. One was, like, naked, too, or something. It's weird. So, like, ran into the woods. He made sure that his sheep were taken care of. He allowed them to desert him. And he stood there like, yeah, I'll take it. I'll take the blame. I'll take everything. I'll take all your sins. Come capture me. Leave them alone. That's the good shepherd. That's Jesus. That's the God we worship. It's amazing. Now, if you notice something, we forsake God. God does not forsake us, period. We forsake God all the time. We desert him. We walk away from him. We think selfishly. We think worldly. We think, we think non-eternal. And he never forsakes us, and he never, ever forgets us. And it's proven here. Now we see Jesus captured, and here come some trials. I put trials in air quotes because they're not really trials. The first one, at least, is not. This is Jesus before the Sanhedrin, okay? So in verses 57 to 61, I'm just going to paraphrase here. The Sanhedrin were looking to charge Jesus. So they had all these false witnesses come his way, like right in front of him, and I say all these lies, essentially, to catch him because they had nothing on him. He was perfect, right? They had false witnesses in 1661 that say, finally two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. This is what Satan does to us. Satan takes God's words and twists them. He didn't say he was going to like pick apart the temple. The temple was his body, right? The temple was his body. He knew he was going to die. In three days, he was going to rise back up, and the temple was going to be made new again. Okay? But that's what Satan does, and that's what we people do, you know, when we have these selfish motives. Now, there's a reason why I mentioned nighttime earlier. It's really important, because the religious leaders were doing this illegally. This was illegal. It's against Jewish law to hold a trial at nighttime, middle of the night. Can't do it, all right? You can, you can hold somebody, right? We have some people in law here, right? You can hold somebody and detain them if they're a threat to the public. You can do that. You can hold them and just make sure they don't, like, kill somebody else or something, right? But you can't have a trial until the daytime. You have to have everybody awake. Everybody has to be coherent, and everybody has to actually be in part with this, with this uh, trial, okay? So this is illegal, but why did they break their own laws? It's weird. Why would these religious leaders break their own laws? Envy of his power. Okay, and we're going to get to that in a little bit too. But they were so envious of Jesus that they had to bring false testimonies. They had to bring false witnesses. They had to make their own things up, and they had to do this illegally at nighttime. It's crazy. But Jesus showed excellent patience and humility here, didn't he? You know, many humans, including myself, would, like, panic in the situation. I'd be, like, sitting there, already pretty much taken away by people with clubs, and I'd be like, I'm innocent. I didn't do any of this, and these two guys, are, they're lying. 
They're lying. I didn't say I was going to tear it down, and I would try to express that, and I would try to express my innocence. But no, what did Jesus do? He sat there silently, right? He was just like, it broke sound barriers, that silence. Jesus' silence broke sound barriers. Even though he could send a wicked big army of angels, right, down to, like, destroy everybody and take this pain away from him and take pain from everybody and just make everything new, he didn't. He could have called out those false witnesses. He didn't. He stayed humble. His silence was so loud that it caused this high priest to say this next. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. He ran out of ideas. He's like, you know what? All this stuff is getting nowhere. I don't know what else to do. Now I'm going to charge you, Jesus, under oath of the living God, ironically, to tell me that you're the Messiah. This is his last attempt to charge him. So what happens? Verse 64 to 68. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, right, which is a, a usual thing that when you're this blasphemy, it's like the worst thing ever. It's disgusting. So they tear their clothes, and you, you, it takes a long time to either hem them again or you have to get a new one, right? <laughs> you can't really just repair clothes back then, right? And he says, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Unbelievable. They straight up assaulted him, like straight up assaulted him. This trial held no legality. This was an illegal trial, and they're hitting him. They're spitting on him. They're, I don't even know if like his eyes were like closed maybe because they asked, who hit you, right? Maybe he was praying. He was standing there. Maybe they were hitting him from the side. They were circling around him, right? And they're hitting him all over the place. And they say, who? Prophesy to us, Messiah. If you're the Messiah, if you're a prophet, that means you know who hit you, and then you can charge them, right? You ever hear of the uh, psychic who got into a car accident? You ever hear that? You can say that he never saw it coming, right? He's a fraud, right? The, the psychic's a fraud. Why are you even get in your car that day if you're going to get into a car accident? You should know this, right? But that's what they're doing. That's what they're saying here. They're like, listen, you're, the, you're a prophet. You're the Messiah. That means you know who hits you, right? So charge them. And he's like, he's staying silent. They were worried about the physical hit instead of the fact that they were all guilty. They were saying, oh, yeah, this person that assaulted them, you can prophesy to us. He, if he's a fraud, he won't know who hit him. And then they were worried about the whole physical aspect of this, this whole situation, but all of them were guilty without even hitting him crazy how much we don't we don't realize about ourselves right all right verses 69 and 75 i'm not going to read all this but this is where again we've probably read all this before peter denies jesus three times okay three different people come up they're like hey that's the guy that been hanging out with jesus and he denies it three times and he gets frustrated and he curses not typical fruits of the spirit that we hear in galatians 5 22 and 23 you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Peter didn't really illustrate that when he was denying Jesus three times, okay? If these fruits aren't bearing when we're in a bind, right, we might want to do a heart check, okay? Because we might be falling back on something else, not faith in something else, not of the Spirit, right? But don't get me wrong, we're human, I get it, we fall 
Peter fell. He was swearing and angry and all this stuff, and that's okay. And we're going to get to that in a second. But he denies him three times before the rooster crows, and it actually happens. Jesus said he was going to do that. Now, just remember, we just had the, the Last Supper, right? And Jesus actually told Peter that, hey, you're going to deny me three times because Peter's like, I love you, God, so much. Nothing's going to happen to you, right? I love you. I'll go to death for you. He's like, you're going to deny me three times, man. Like, what are you talking about? And he's like, what? And it actually happens, okay? So he's actually developing Peter's faith in a time of sorrow. It's crazy. We've talked about faith in God versus faith in self a lot lately, okay? This is kind of the number one thing, sovereignty of God or sovereignty of self. When you put faith back in yourself, bad things happen. Now, this is called sanctification, right? When God allows these things to happen, he's, it's, sanctification is like a spiritual training or preparation for heaven. That's what sanctification means. It actually means, the word itself, set apart. He's setting us apart from darkness. When we choose Jesus Christ and we choose to follow him forever, now he's like, okay, I'm going to allow things to happen or I'm going to let, let these things happen where you're going to be trained. You're going to be understanding where you fall short so that you can continuously grow in your faith in me, in your trust in me. That's sanctification, okay? Now, the thing about sanctification, though, it comes with pain. It comes with pain, right? Let's pretend, actually, let's, in the Bible, let's refer back to the Bible. God calls himself the potter. We call God the potter a lot. And we are the clay, okay? Now, I haven't done this in a long time, right? But if you have, like, pretend you're, like, what are you, a potter, and you have a clay wheel in front of you. You have the clay, and you put in the foot, foot pedal. You put, like, a thumb in here. Your pieces are falling off, and, like, you're trying to sculpt something beautiful, right? That's what God's doing to us. But you got to think, if clay had, like, nerves or something, right, and you're, like, fidgeting with the clay, and the, it's like, ow! You know, like, that's what the clay would be doing, right, if, if you were forming the clay into something beautiful. That's what God's doing in us, sanctification. He's forming us for something beautiful in heaven, okay? But we, Peter, especially right here, keeps falling back on his own faith. Okay, folks, that's all for this episode of Holy Spirit Soapbox. Please join us for part two in the next episode where Dan continues to dig deeper into Matthew chapter 27 and we hear more about this box. God bless you all. <laughs>